Is that traditional reading? Probably not. Not what, what we imagine. Understanding what's been done and what's out there. I love my staff. I gave them coffee when they came in for the post observation. You, you gotta have an eye. Third eye education. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us for Third Eye Education. Today, we are weaving together three short interviews into one podcast, all centered around the overarching idea of giving voice, conversations with Chris Saldana, administrator. We've got Jim Thompson, retired administrator, and Tyler Ogg, videographer. They have all been interwoven together by our brilliant podcast editor, Anne Hollow. We begin today's conversation with Jim Thompson, who will be sharing with us how to Elevate teacher voices. Well, if uh, uh, if this was before March of 2020, I'd, I'd respond in one way. From Fisher and Fry's wonder new book called Rebound. Traumatic events can take a heavy toll on our psychological lives. We recognize and respond to the one-time event that devastates our lives. A fire, an injury, the death of a loved one, a violent attack, but less recognizable, even to oneself, is the cost of relentless stress. The pandemic has created chronic, long-term stress in our personal and professional lives. I think you might be asking me about trust, which is kind of a, you know, that's kind of like the secret word, which is a big deal. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go early on this one, go early, go off, and I'm going to set the stage to one of my favorite people out there, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Who, who speaks to vulnerability, you know, uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. It's that unstable feeling we get when we step out of our comfort zone or do something that forces us to loosen control. I think that's where we are. But I, I got to ask the teachers. I got to ask the kids. I got to ask the, the custodians, the bus drivers, the parents, talk to me about where you are. Talk to me about where you are, because this September is not going to be a normal September. You know, I was an educator like a lot of you guys, and I hate to say it, but it was kind of cut and paste. And I don't think this summer and this September is going to be like that. I, I got to ask folks, how am I doing? How are you doing? And not to be cavalier, but I love the movie Jerry Maguire. I love Jerry Maguire. And that great line from Jerry Maguire's, help me help you. Because I'm not quite sure. We've never done this before. I, I need to I need to shut up and I need to listen. So to, to paraphrase back, it sounds like you're saying enter from a place of vulnerability and give voice to the people that you're trying to help, whether that be students or teachers. Uh, bus drivers, whoever it is that you're working with. Uh, am, I, am I capturing that correctly? Hi, God bless you, sir. You're doing it beautifully. I, it's a kind of extending moments of grace. In particular right now with, with COVID and the uncertainty and the prolonged stress. Right. And, and, you know, it's something I have to work on very much. And, you know, it'll probably become apparent here, but I have to embrace silence when I ask somebody a, a question. You know, when I first started coaching this stuff, if they did, I asked them a question, they didn't say something after about five or six seconds, I would start say, well, okay, are you thinking this? That was the road to hell, best of intentions. Uh, Shannon Moran, who wrote this fabulous book called Evocative Coach, they said that, that coaching really starts when you've established trust, that partnership, that trust, that benevolence, that stewardship with the teacher. 
that they begin to tell you their story. It's been, this has been uh, remarkable these past uh, 15 months or whatever it's been. And we have asked teachers to do a lot. And I think in some regards, we've asked parents to do a lot. We've asked kids to do a lot, you know. As a school administrator, it's been an interesting, well, discovery of what uh, what I need to do and and sometimes uh, become more sensitive about when someone's upset, trying to understand what it is it that is really driving that. It's not easy. I mean, I, there's not easy answers out there. I had this graduate professor at Noon Pulse where I got my master's degree, and he said, if anybody tells you the truth, do two things and do those two things quickly. Hold on your wallet and call a cop. I'm willing to, I want to share expertise, but I'm no expert on this, but I'd love to listen more and partner more. And probably now more than ever, I need to listen. I need to listen in, 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 because this is not going to be a normal September. I don't know if the next several years are going to be a normal September. This is living through, you know, a long-term stress. I mean, my God, I, I, I just have a grandchild. But there were, you know, teachers who were doing this synchronous, asynchronous stuff. And at home, they had their own kids. Lord, I don't know how they did it. I mean, many blessings. The valor, the dedication. Talk about profiles and courage. Talk about profiles and courage. And we didn't see, I don't think anybody saw this coming. It was like, boom. What is the balancing act between trying to help people grow while respecting the fact that they have suffered uh, traumatic stress. How do we do that? I think this is going to be a journey. Listening to people, uh, I love the 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 word that Jim Knight keeps surfacing is dialogue. What is best for kids? And I think we have to keep going back to that. Is that an easy question? It is not. You know, Knight writes in Better Conversations. He says there's this a, a Zulu word, salubona. It means that the person is in some real way brought more fully into existence by virtue of the fact that they are seen. I think it goes for our students. Our students are gonna need that, that they're seen in their voice. And our staff, whether it be bus drivers, custodians, teachers are gonna need that. I tried to do that as an elementary principal. How are you, how you doing, how's the family? Want a cup of coffee, maybe old school. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's more than just that. It's more than just that. Oh, sure it is. I think uh, it comes down to relationships. I was just talking to a teacher just a little bit ago who has had remarkable performance on her students' achievement tests recently in spite of a COVID and probably an outlier among her peers. And I, I, we talked a little bit about that. And she starts her, starts her class. She says, no matter what, the first thing we do is just talk about how was your day? How are you doing today? And, and the kids are having an interaction with her so that that's her grounding. And those kids feel safe and they just feel heard, you know, that they have a voice in that room and they feel safe to maybe challenge themselves and push themselves. When she asks for more, they give more. You know, both what you've been saying, Jim, and, and what uh, Mike Carolyn just uh, echoed uh, reminds me a little bit of something that, that we're doing in our district right now. Uh, Nick and I, Department of Teaching and, and Learning, sent out a, a survey recently, and we uh, received back some feedback, and then we sent out, okay, based on the feedback we've received so far, here's what we're thinking our next steps. And, and in our dialogue back and forth, we've been talking about, okay, the next time we give the survey, here's what we hope to see. And and I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves that that dialogue can be a face-to-face -face and, and oftentimes 
is great to have that face to face. That's where some of the strongest conversations can happen. But we can also create other ways to have those dialogues and conversations as well. Copying Nick and Heather, I put out a survey, administrative survey, just to get feedback. Where are we at? How are we doing? And you know, asking some very critical questions about leadership, and uh, got some really tough answers back. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I asked for honesty. I'm getting honesty back. I'm uh, going to be struggling through some of those feedback comments, but but they're going to help me become better. That leads us to to uh, something I know you're passionate about, Jim. Uh, one of the pieces of feedback we got, in part because of such a weird year, was we scored lowest on, I understand what's happening in the classroom right now. And I know that you uh, did a lot of work in, in uh, observations and feedback and working with teachers in the classroom. Is there any advice you can give us in knowing that next year we're going to kick off the year getting into as many classrooms as possible? Anything that you know, uh, yeah, this consistently works. We spend a lot of time, and I can tell you as a principal, and a lot of energy doing traditional evaluations. Now, I love my staff. I gave them coffee when they came in for the post-observation. Do you get the tie? I still drink coffee. And you know what? About 90% of the time, if I gave them coffee and I sat down, we reviewed their evaluation. You know what they, kind of, they said to me? I'll tell you what they didn't say. Could we do a couple more of these this year? Because this was so productive and so much fun. You know what they said? Thank God it's over. Until next year, I had a couple of former assistant principals that be became superintendents. And, and back in 2012, they said, come on into our districts, Jim. So I got about five or six brave souls in each district. And I said, could you just videotape maybe 10 minutes of your look at it? And, and what do you see? What do you see? And it'll be just you and me talking. What happened at the end of that year is I'd say at least 90% of the teachers I work with said, this has been the best PD I've ever had. We don't know what it looks like when we do what we do. We don't. Teacher after teacher said that was the most profound um, PD they've ever had. It really helped them grow. You know, teaching is this interesting act that, it, you know, video is so revealing to it, so revealing to it. And, and, and folks, I, and I think everybody needs a coach. That was Jim Thompson. Thank you so much. Our next mini-sode is with Chris Saldana talking about reading and standardized tests. The first question that I, I really want to make sure that we, we talk about is the fact that in this passion that you have about serving students who tend to be disengaged, recently you were participating in a, a culture ed Twitter chat and you noted that a lot of people who say that they aren't readers are actually readers. So I would love to hear how you would interpret reader, uh, especially in a way that would encompass even those traditionally more disengaged learners? So I think that we all have some passion somewhere. You know, you know, for me, I'm a big political junkie. I also like sports. So when you get to looking at, you know, things, you talk to your students and you get to know them, find what their passions are, find out what the things that are interesting, you know, I remember having a, a student who was really passionate about, you know, auto mechanics and fixing cars, fixing them up. So when you key in on those kinds of things, um, and maybe they're not, like I said, they're not maybe reading a book, but if you get them reading, you know, information on the internet or a manual, 
but like I, I think any little bit of reading that they do graphic novels i mean is definitely up there it doesn't doesn't have to be out of a, what we would call a typical textbook i think it's worth mentioning audiobooks are, are excellent sources blogs is that traditional reading probably not not what, what we imagine uh but also i'd also say right up there is also writing i mean i get some of those that are maybe not readers per se but they are writers and i always you know in my classes when i taught it was always you know writing is reading and so i think that's important important to to encourage as well so you don't have to like i say you don't have to devour books i mean obviously you have those students who, who do and great but i was a reluctant reader myself and so uh, i learned little by little and it's not my my go-to activity when when i have some downtime i usually uh, i'll browse the internet and so they grab my interest uh, so an example for you uh, as a political junkie i uh, used to incorporate into my class uh, the uh, 9-11 commission uh, had a, a graphic novel and it was uh, uh, literally the 9-11 Commission's report adding in visuals. Is it that extra element that helps to engage? Certainly you're losing nothing in the skill of reading, right? You're, it's all still there. So if there's just a little extra hook, fabulous. What is the barrier to people seeing uh, reading in a wider lens? I kind of mixed mixed feelings about that because, you know, in seeing my kids kind of go through school, there's a big uh, push for things like, the accelerated reader. I just, I really want to encourage reading for the love of reading. More to your point about visuals, you know, that, those I taught AP World History for you know almost ten years, and so when we use visuals, we, we use the tool optic. You know, kind of the overall parts, title, interrelationships, conclusion. I didn't know there was a, a kind of a graphic novel version of the 9/11 Commission. That sounds totally interesting. Right. Um, and so like and so like I think that's something you could take, you know, take in like in a social studies class and tear apart, you know, okay, well, what is the visual showing? What is it saying? You know, what you know, what and what is your conclusion? I mean, that's building the skills that we need our, our students to have. Yeah, if it tells you anything, I used it for years and then all my copies got taken by students. Uh, and I think I think <laughs> I mean it was to be read in class and the fact that they were disappearing means something. That's Absolutely. We have this notion of this is what a reader is, and I've got, you know, X number of books. And right now I'm reading uh, Where the Crawdads Lie. I've been reading it for probably close to two months. I just haven't had a chance to kind of sit back and go with it. Yeah. And I think that there's something that you just you you touched on there and you, you touched on it a little bit with AR, too, which is it's not just about finding what it is you want to read. It's also about finding how you read right? Nick tends to read when he can really devote his time and attention to it. I can pick it up anytime. Uh, my husband uh, likes to read usually between 6.30 p.m. and 9 o'clock at night, and that's his reading time. You know, I taught the American Lit Honors last year, and my students were always wondering, well, when does this book have to be done by? And I always had a hard time answering that question because everybody's rhythm was different. And some people might finish it like this, and some people might need weeks we, we had the chance to talk to Sarah Zerwin a few podcasts ago. Something she said was illuminating to me, and, and that is, you know, we have these complex bundle of skills that we associate with reading and readers. And when we do things like choosing the books that our students read, well, we're taking away a skill. 
you know, you bring up bring a good, interesting point. I mean, I can point to one book in particular that because it was assigned to me, I didn't quite enjoy it, and I was I didn't get as excited about To Kill a Mockingbird as I probably could have or would have. And so, on the other hand, we read that same year we read Cyrano de Bergerac. Read that like in one day. You know, it was it was exciting. I loved it. And and now I can say, as an administrator, you know, I understand. Okay, we're teaching certain things through the reading. I get that now. I just I wish there was a better way. We had a a teacher who just her students just holy cow, stupidest test in the world, and they still just blew it out of the water. And had a conversation with her. Well, you know what what did you do to prepare your your kids for this test? She's like nothing. Like I. I talked to them a little bit about like what the test would look like, but I just taught them good things. I just followed the curriculum, taught them lessons, got them passionate about learning, and then they did well. It's it's interesting because I've had a couple of experiences. I taught AP World for like I said for nine years, you know, I, and I, I'm I mean as much as they say like don't assign reading I, I, because of the nature of of that beast. There was no way I couldn't couldn't assign reading. It's a monster of, of an exam. We did along the way. Also, we did skills here and there, um, critical problem solving skills. Um, there's no way for you to be knowledgeable about world history for at the level of a novice historian without reading this book. If you want to take the test and be successful, this that's what you're going to need to do. Contrast that with my on level world history class. We did some reading. Did a lot of talking. I used little articles, used snippets of documents, used which seemed to be at work a lot more. And of course, at the end of the year, you know, I had some of the highest passing scores, and I didn't teach to the test. I said, look, if you do the little things and you do them right, and we'll practice them along the way, and you'll have plenty of time. You'll be able to do fine. And sure enough, that's that's what would happen. Thank you so much to Chris Aldana. Our next episode is with Tyler Og. Uh, speaking about how do you create voice and how do you remix other people's ideas. I'm always stuck at the home office, so home and work is, is kind of a strange divide. And that space really just blew our minds. It kind of became a sport of photographing these places as, as sculpture. You always get, oh, I'd love to own, you know, one of these homes one day. In a way, the photography end kind of becomes a way of owning it in a small way, which I don't know, sometimes can be just as satisfying. I've always been a history nut, so... So to connect uh, the, the things that you're talking about, Tyler, to previous conversations we've had and that our listeners might have been listening to, you are talking about space and the way that we interact with it, connect with it. We talked to Ian Levy about students creating space where their minds open up. You're also talking about how Frank Lloyd Wright pulled people together. And uh, both Scott Goodson talked about bringing people around a common cause or a common movement. And Elon and uh, Laserbeak talked about bringing people together through common connections and reaching out and talking to people that you admire. Certainly, it's, it's fascinating to think about looking at it through this lens of capturing it through visuals, capturing it through history. Uh, these are lenses that we don't talk about nearly enough, but we certainly believe there are skills that every teacher can benefit from. Uh, would you have any tips to educators on, on leveraging visuals? You know, I grew up on Legos. That was a huge visual marker where I'm awful at math, but I can write my way or express my way into designing 
a space and a, and a mood and, and maybe an emotion in that. I come from it not from a mathematical design point, but, but really just a visual spatial point where I could even take, you know, a home that I've been in and, and even build it out of Legos just as a way to kind of meditate and think through some of the, the other thoughts that, that I'm trying to work out or a creative block that I'm trying to follow through, you know, if I'm working on a story or, or video related. I love what you're saying there about creative blocks and, and essentially this imitation, you're talking about it through Legos. I'd be curious as a as an artist, a person who works in the art world and works with a lot of artists as well, like it's very common to, as a novice, to imitate something. You know, I think about in the world of poetry because that's the world I operate in. I might take a, a famous poet style and try to imitate it as I'm kind of trying to find my own path. What's your feelings on the, the side of imitation if someone is leaning into a specific artist's style? And at what point does it become infringing upon them as opposed to inspiration and finding your own voice? Yeah, there's definitely a mode of borrowing. And that comes down to the research of, of culture, understanding what's been done and what's out there. You know, I've got friends that are musicians, and sometimes it's fun to just dig up some crazy old archive, you know, material. If anybody wants to check out an example, I really loved the uh, Jay Havoc and Loudmouth Brass that you put together. Oh, yeah. Really yep. cool. Uh, and also a cool collaboration between a brass band and a hip-hop artist. Again, thinking outside of the box. You can always shoot new material, but sometimes it's fun mixing old material with new material. You know, so something like that is an example of, of borrowing. My partner's in the painting world, and so she comes across a lot of research of where, where she was inspired by late career Matisse. He was, you know, designing things, just cutting out paper and bringing shapes and organic shapes forth. You know, it's one thing to adopt those types of designs and clean them up and kind of perpetuate them in a certain way. There's always a, a very tricky point too, where sometimes your subconscious came across something and you didn't realize it, you know, that it might be, might be seen as something that's already done. And that's also a fine line of discussing where culture has gone and how far it's gone to the point that can we look at anything as new anymore? That could be a discussion that, you know, could go on for hours as to, to where culture is dead or where music continues to be born and reborn from one generation to the next. Um, that reminds me, though, Tyler, if we go back to uh, what you were talking about with the constraints of Instagram, and I think that constraints can be can be inspirational. In fact, we worked with Mark Barden, who wrote a beautiful constraint a while back. He's doing a, a book group with our teachers right now in Doriota, and we have a lot of constraints in education. How can constraints be actually fodder for art and creation and your videography? For the longest time, I was just using iMovie, um, which was a, a simple, basic, you know, free editing software package for anybody getting started. Everything was very preset where you didn't have a lot of manual override on. And I think, you know, once you get your, your brain wrapped around how a software works in that capacity, you're then having a moment where you're realizing everything that it can't do and how to kind of trick that approach to it. What iMovie ended up doing was I wanted to create transitions that I couldn't purchase. I always remember the Batman, the original uh, Batman with Adam West, where it always had the little mini 
you know, transition in and out. They, you know, mounted and rigged a camera and spun it in that way and used that as an editing transition that wasn't just a dissolve or a cut. And it's always funny to be on a shoot with new people because they're always like, oh, what are you doing? As I'm like slowly backing away from them at a long distance and then spinning and really getting physical with the camera, creating transitions that I just couldn't otherwise. It turns doing video into a sport. I, I hate tripods. I loathe them and I, I want to lift the camera from that. It's been years of just keeping a steady hand. We we had a board meeting last night and the uh, board member made a comment that caused me to step back and think about how I could strain my thinking about something, re, redesigning some of our teaching and learning spaces. I was thinking about constraints of some construction material is getting in the way of other things. And she said, just take it down, not not the parts that keep the building up, but remove the ceiling, for example, and expose the beam structures. And I never thought about that. The importance of, of really knowing what's out there. Things that uh, listeners might be familiar with be like the five paragraph essay, just crazy structured. And it yeah, it teaches you how to write, but it removes your voice because everybody's going to do it the same way. At the same time, if you go the exact opposite and give too many choices, you got the choice overload. Do you have any advice on, on how to help others develop a voice? Instagram is a great rabbit hole for artists to go down because it's a huge picture book and it's not so politically charged and it's less personal. And I think it's a huge resource to also get inspired if you know if we're looking at a younger generation's approach. Oh, that was great. Thank you so much to our guests today. We've had Chris Saldana, Jim Thompson, and Tyler Ogg. Thank you to our podcasters, Nick Truxel, Heather Like, and Michael Carroll. And thank you for our podcast music done by Michael Terrell. And also, if you like what we're doing here, please take a moment to share us on your local social media or like us on your podcasting app. Also, really excited about our upcoming pieces that we are doing with Amit and Gori Soon, how to get students more involved in creating curriculum, and our conversation with Arish Makati on how to be a little bit more inclusive in our classrooms.